Jewish audio on Chabad.org. Help of Hashem, we are learning Bava Kama Dav Tzadik. We left off on Dav Tzadik, Amid Aleph, four lines from the top of the Amid. We began on Dav Petas Amid Beis with the Gemara quoting two Braises that argue with each other. The Braises speaking about the Din, that when a person who owns a slave, who owns an Evet Knani, knocks out the eye or the tooth, or really any one of the 24 tips of limbs that do not regenerate, then the Torah penalizes the owner by having that slave freed. Now the question is, if there's a woman that owned slaves before she got married, and she brought them into her marriage in the category of meaning that these slaves continuously belong to her. But during the marriage, the husband gets to use those slaves, the paytas belongs to the husband. And during that marriage, what happens if either the husband or the wife, they mutilate that slave, God forbid. So all, both prices agree that if the husband is the one that does it, the slave does not go out free. Being that he only owns the user fruit rights in the slaves, they don't really belong to him. So he is not empowered, so to say, to free them. Or the the penalty of him mutilating them is not that they should go free, they're not his. Question is, what happens if the woman is the one that knocks out the tooth or the eye? So we had two braises. Braiser number one said that if the woman knocks out the tooth or the eye, they do go free. And braiser number two said that not the husband nor the wife. He'll never go free if that were to happen to him. And the initial understanding of what is the argument between these two Tanoim, it has to do whether we hold of the Takon of Usha or not. In Usha, the Sanhedrin were exiled, and they made various decrees, and one decree that's not explicitly recorded in any of the Tanoic works is whether a woman has the right to sell her Nechzimelug during her marriage. Before Takon of Usha, a woman would have such a right. Now, obviously, the buyer doesn't get to use whatever he's buying because during the marriage, the husband is the one who has the rights over the paytas, and a person cannot sell something that they don't own, but being that the essence, the item itself belongs to her, she can pre-sell it. And therefore, whether he divorces her, or whether he predeceases her, or if she is the one that dies before him, the buyer were to own from that point on the nechzimalik came along Usha, came along the Sanhedrin, and they made a, de- a decree, like Rashi said, for, for there not to be animosity between the husband towards his wife, that she is not able to sell her nechzimaloig while she's married. So the first said that holds that if the woman knocks out the tooth or the eye, the evid will go free. The Gemara suggested that's because that said goes according to the opinion that there is no such a thing as a takon of Usha. Which means that the woman not only during the marriage does she own the essence of the slave, she even can sell it. So it's mamash hers. So therefore, since it's hers, if she's the one that knocked out the tooth or the eye, the slave goes free. The other Braisa that says that if a woman knocks out the tooth or the eye, she, like her husband, the slave will not go free, that's because that Braisa holds that we did accept the Takana Vusha. The woman does not have the right to sell the slave. So it's not fully hers. Therefore, it won't go free. So the Gemara countered that by giving two suggestions that we learned yesterday. And again, fourth line from the top of the Amid, or I'll tell you that the Kula Alma, that both Braisa 1 and 2, none of them accepted the Takana Vusha, meaning that the woman indeed has the right to sell that slave. 
So now the question will be, if she has such a right, why will the slave not go free? She owns the slave. Vahachin over here, the king and Pedis, king and Haguf, dami komifligi. The argument, the underlying argument between both prices is whether we say that one who has user fruit rights is that tantamount to owning the thing itself. The husband is the one that has Pedis in the nef, in the in the zavodim. And therefore, if you're going to hold that king and Pedis, king and Haguf, then the husband's ownership in the user fruit will, so to say, take away the slave from belonging to the woman. Because the husband is the one that owns it, so therefore she does not. She's not the owner, she cannot have them freed because she knocked out the tooth or the eye. So really what we have been learning as a machlekes Rabbi Echanan and a shlakish will now turn out to be a machlekes tanoim. Whether king and apetus, king and aguf or not. I'm sorry? If the Ebed is killed, then the master is put to death for that. It's murder. Uh, no, limbs not regenerating by definition means it does not heal. Doesn't regenerate, doesn't grow back. And now really, now we will identify that we know which Tanoim will hold what in this argument of King and Apetis, King and Aguf, or not. The Tanya we learned, and this Braisa is going to focus on another din regarding Avadim, also regarding an Evet Knani. And this is based on the Pasik and Pasha's Mishpatim that says, Kiyake Ish, Es Avdoi Oi if a man is going to hit his male slave, his female slave, Bishavet, Vameis, it's a matastic, and if God forbid they die, Tachasiyada, if they die under his hand. So the Pasik says, Nakim, Yinakim, that the master is going to be avenged, or the slave is going to be avenged by killing the master. One is not allowed to kill, and it cannot, it's murder. However, the Pasik says, Ach, Im Yoim, Oyemayim, Yukam, Yamoid, if a day or two, during a day or two, the slave will get up. By the way, Rashi in Chumash says, is it a day or two? So Rashi interprets, a day that's like two days, meaning 24 hours. If 24 hours pass after the slave was hidden and he gets up, so then the Torah says, he should not be avenged, because at the end of the day, he does belong to the master. Meaning the following, normally when it comes to the horrible sin of murder, when the Uven hits Shimon, and that leads to Shimon's death, Reuven is a murderer. We don't say, well, he only died a week later. If the death was a direct result from the clap that he got, so then, you know, Reuven murdered. By an Evid, there's one exception, that if the master is the one that hit his slave, there the Torah says, if they die within 24 hours, then the master is put to death. But if the slave does not die within 24 hours, even if the death is a direct result of the slave being hit by the master, the traitor says, Lo, you come, the, the slave is not avenged. Now, says the Braisson, if a person sold his slave to another, Reuven sold the slave to Shimon. However, but Reuven, the original owner, stipulated that Almenas. That this slave should still work for me for 30 days. Now during those 30 days, the slave belongs to Shimon. But Reuven has the user fruit rights on the slave. 
And now the question is, if either one of the two, the original owner or the buyer, if they, God forbid, hit their, that slave and the slave died, but the slave died after 24 hours, so the question is, which one of these two, or if any one of these two, are going to be included in this exception of an exemption of being held in account of murder? So this is a machlekes, a Rabbi Meir holds, the original owner, the one that retained user fruit rights for 30 days, he will be the one that's included in the exemption, in this leniency. That if he's the one that hits a slave and the slave died, you know, after 24 hours, he won't be uh, held in account. Why? Says Rav Meir, because when the trader introduces the words that a slave that is hit, the master is put to death, the trader says, that if it died under his hands, meaning the one that has the right to work with the slave is the one that the trader is referring to when it then gives the leniency that if 24 hours passed after it was hit, then the master will not be held in account. It was under the slave. So these are the words of Rav Meir. Interestingly, the Gemara says that's not really his reason. Yes, he quotes the words, because the Torah says the words, and it was, but as we'll see in a moment, those words are, are only needed to, to be as a rebuttal to Rabbi Yehuda's opinion which has other words. So these words, as we'll see soon, nullify other words. But really, says the Gemara, what is the underlying rationale behind Abi Meir? Kosovar, Kenyan, Pedis, Kikinian, Haguftami. Rav Meir holds that the original owner that retained the usufruit rights for 30 days, in other words, he owns the Pedis of the Evit, Kenyan, Pedis, Kikinian, Haguf. So it's considered as if Itaka owns the Evit. The owner of the Evit has this leniency, Gavaldik. Now what about the other one? The other one who owns the essence, that one doesn't have the paytas. So he doesn't own anything. So the other one, if he hits the Evid, if even if the Evid dies after 24 hours, the new buyer will be held in account. Rabbi Yehuda says the opposite. That Shani, that the second master, the buyer, is the one that has this leniency of the day or two, of the 24 hours. If the second one hit the Evid within the first 30 days, then the second master won't be held in account if he survived for 24 hours. Why? Because in the second Pasuk, when the trader says, Achim yoim yomayim yukam, or Achim yomayim yamoid, lo yukam, the trader ends with the words, kikas poyhu. Because it is his. Who is the Evans? His? The second owner, the buyer. Now again, the Gemara says, these are the words of Rabbi Yehuda. But Rabbi Yehuda is only using the words, kikas poyhu, to refute Rabbi Meir's words of umeis tachas yadai. So each one is using these words to refute the other. But what's really the reason of Rabbi Yehuda? Because he holds, that the fact that the first one has the right to use the slave for 30 days, that's only called king and Petus. But that's not town to mount for the first one to own the slave. So who does the slave belong to? He belongs to the second one. So only the second one has this leniency. So here, before we go on, that's the machlekes between Rabbi Meir and Rabbi Yehuda, that Rabbi Meir... Is, is of the opinion that we had until now from Rabbi Yechanan, that King in Apetus is King in Aguf, and Rabbi Yehuda is the one that has the opinion that until now we had in the name of Reish Lakish, that King in Apetus is Lav King in Aguf. Now the Braisa continues with two other opinions. Rabbi Yehuda, Oimer, wow, he's lenient. Shnei and the Yeshnan Bedin Yomayim, both the original owner and the buyer, 
they both, if they hit that slave and the slave survives for 24 hours and then he dies, nine, neither of these masters will be held accountable in a human court for the murder that they committed. Or we apply the leniency to both, Zed, the first one, because he has the rights now for 30 days to have the Evid work for him. And Vizan, the buyer, because he is the actual owner of the Evid. So now explains the Gemara, what is Shitas Rabbi Yossi? Mesapkale says the Gemara that Rabbi Yossi has a doubt whether King in Pedas is King in Aguf or not King in Aguf. So since he doesn't know, and this will affect as who is the real owner. So there's a rule. The question is whether you have to kill the master or not. Well, is he the master? Maybe he is included in the leniency. Maybe he's not. And it's all based on king and apetis, king and go for not. Since we don't know, so therefore we are lenient for both of them. And Abeliezer, the fourth opinion, holds the opposite. None of them have this leniency. In other words, if they're hitting the slave ultimately leads in the slave's death, then that person is held in account. And ultimately, the punishment for murder is getting killed. Why Zed, the second one, is not included in the leniency? Because it says in the first Pasuk, Umeis tachas And it's not tachas He is not currently working for the second. He was retained by the first. And Vizen, the first one, is not under the leniency. Because he is not the owner of the Evid. He already sold the Evid. Now comes along Grava. And again, as we spoke out, these two verses cannot be the real reason of Shittas Rabbi Eliezer. Because one really just nullifies the other. But says Rava, my Tamad Rabbi Eliezer, Amar Kra, since the trade at the end says the words, Ki and the Torah could have written the words, Ki in other words, why are we lenient? Because at the end of the day, he's a slave. He, he's viewed as a thing that belongs to someone. Okay, but why did the Torah have to write the words ki kaspoi? Because he is his. Kaspoi hamayuchadloi. In other words, it's his sole property. Neither of these masters can say that that Evid is their sole property. Ah. So it's not about king and apetis, king and or not. It has to do whether you are solely belonging to someone or is there someone else who has some sort of ownership over you. Now, says Rashi, this is very important, that the meaning of kaspoihu doesn't mean, as we'll see in a moment, that if two partners will own a slave and he doesn't solely belong to one, that they're not considered their masters. Here, the solely means something else. One of them owns the goof. The other one owns the paytas. In a normal partnership, I own, let's say, 50% of all of the evid, and you own 50% of all of the evid. Here, it's different. The one owns the user fruit, the other one owns the essence. There, we say that none of them can claim that the evid is their kaspoi solely. Not even half, it's like the different types. And therefore, both of them are not included in the leniency. Neither one. In a, case, in a partnership, we'll get to that in a moment. In a partnership like this, where one partner owns the essence and the older partner only owns the user fruit, then none of them will be included in this leniency. But before we go on, in the third Torah, in the Amid, all the way in the beginning, in the first Torah, the end of the, 
right before the first wide line, Rab Meir Oimer Rishoin. Now the first wide line under in the in Tosfos. Yesh Nebedin Yemi Yemayim because Rab Meir holds King and Pedes Ki King and Aguf. Now hold on. Tosfos asks a great question. In the two brayses that we learned, that we spoke out in the beginning of now this year. None of them hold that the husband, if he has avodim that are nechsimalug, who hits those avodim, that they're going to go free. Now the husband has king in Petus. And if Rav Meir holds king in Petus, king in Aguv, so why shouldn't we say that if the husband is the one that knocked out the two-third eye, the slave should go free? King in Petus, king in Aguv. Mishum, the only koyach l'shach king in Aguv shalaisha. Because Taisva says, even according to Rav Meir, during the marriage, the husband doesn't have the right to emancipate the slave. He cannot. Yet, the Torah gave him the right to, for the usufruit, and king and apetiske, king and aguf, but since the husband cannot emancipate the slave, then he cannot free the slave by knocking out the tooth or the eye. Avol Taisva says, Gavaldik bedin Why was the Torah lenient? That if the master hits a slave and they survive for 24 hours, the master is not held in account of murder? Because the master had the right to work with the slave. These are the words of the Torah. Here, the one who has King Enapetus, in the case of the Braisa, the first owner who retained 30 days user fruit rights, he had the right to work with the slave. So the logic of the leniency fits. In other words, of course, he shouldn't have hit the slave. But since he had the right to work with the slave, and the hitting him was work-related, so therefore, we can apply the leniency to him as long as you say, King in Apetus, King in Aguf. Fantastic. Okay, back in the Gemara. Says the Gemara, Keman, Ozlohada, Amara, Meimar, now that we have this four-way Machloikas, Rabbi Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yehissi, and Rabbi Elazar, Rabbi Eliezer, according to whom will go the statement of Amemar, Ishve Isha, that if you have a man and a woman, Rashi says, if they together, sold the Eved, let's say that they owned, now together they can sell it. They did nothing, meaning, now let's read Rashi inside, it's 13 lines, 12 lines from the bottom of the Amid. What does Amemer mean that Says Rashi, meaning, when they sell them both together, the husband and the wife, the buyer gets to keep it. Because the woman owns the essence, the husband owns the user fruit, so they together can sell it. But if either the husband or the wife dies, says Rashi, Amemar says, is the one that is living, can nullify the sale. See, it's back mine. And Rashi continues, We don't compare them to normal partners, where when two partners sell an item together, the buyer owns it. You can't retract it, even if one buyer... One partner dies. Because the Hassam in partnership, like we spoke out, each one owns 50%. But each one owns the entirety of the 50%. The essence, the rights to use. But over here, the essence of the slave belongs entirely to the woman. And the husband in, entirely owns the user fruit. And therefore, none of them fully own the Ever on the same level. Back in here, and therefore, the sale is not a sale. And who will this be according to? Says the Gemara, knows that, that when neither of them have a absolute ownership, then how do they have the power to sell it? That man, likewise, 
according to which opinion will be the following b'raisa, that Misha if you have a slave that is half a slave and half a free man, now here Toysvist in the bottom of the Ahmed, following Rashi's approach, interprets this b'raisa, not that we're speaking about your normal chatzay yevad chatzay ben chayden, where he was owned by two people and one master freed him. So he's half free and half slave to the one that didn't free him. No, we're speaking about a case, says Toysvist in the bottom, where a master already freed his Evid, but he didn't give him a document of emancipation. Because we're looking for scenarios where there's a dual ownership, but the dual ownership is such that one owns the goof and the other owns the paytas. So when the master freed the Evid, he needs a document, so the goof still belongs to the master. But he's free, he doesn't have to work for the master. All of the paytas work to the Evid. Or, continues the Braisa, if an Evid belongs to two partners, and here again, Toysvist in the bottom, look inside, the second to last line of the Amid, means, one of them owns the essence of the slave, and the other one owns the user fruit, each one owns that part in its entirety. It's an unusual partnership. And again, Toysvist, we said it outside, he was already freed financially. He doesn't have to work for anyone. But he, he wasn't given the document of emancipation. So his essence is still bound. So in such a case, says the Braisa, if the master now, or if one of the partners hits the Eved, he will not be freed by him getting one of his 24 limbs that do not regenerate knocked out. Why? Again, because you can't Consider that Evid belonging to someone when he doesn't fully belong to him. It's not under his sole ownership. That this price is also Rabbi Eliezer. Just like Rabbi Eliezer in the case of the leniency of Yoimu Yomayim Yamoid said, The trader says, who means it has to be someone's absolute belonging. When the trader speaks about the Kiyaki Ish as Ein Avdoi, Avdoi, if the master knocked out the eye of his Evid, it has to be an Evid that solely belongs to him, and that, that excludes a scenario where there's a Pedas to one and the Goof to the other. Gavaldik. Okay, we concluded the Sugya of King and Apereske, King and Aguf. We concluded the Sugya of Takana Susha, and now we go on with the next Mishnah. We will learn that the next Mishnah is speaking about the damage of Boishis. Even though, like in all cases, there's different approaches, we're following one. Says the Mishnah, Rashi here brings both meanings of Toikeya. I know we repeat this many times. We're going to go with the first explanation of Rashi, that someone physically hit someone else on his air. There was a physical assault. And again, even though we just learned recently that if someone becomes deaf, they lose all of their value. He didn't become completely deaf. We're not speaking here about the Nezek part. We're only speaking about the shame part. Says the Mishnah, that the assailant has to give to the one who got humiliated one Sela. We know that one Sela is four Zuz. Okay, so the Mishnah is giving numbers for humiliation, which is hard to put. It's hard to put a number. Rabbi Yehuda says, in the name of Rabbi Yehuda Haglili, no, not a Sela, but a Mana. A mana is a hundred zuz. A mana is 25 sela. 
Now I want you to know that this is something very unusual. To have a machlekes tanoim, where the opinions are so far apart, you know, one, even if you go up 100%, one zuz, two zuz, you're going from one sela to one mana, and more, just to be aware that in the Tzadik Amit Beis, we're going to see that this is much more than you think. As we, let's leave this for the Gemara. This is a rare exception where there's a huge difference in how to monetize shame. Next case, says the Mishnah, Setarai, if one slaps another, we're speaking about slapping someone on his face, so then Noisen Loi, then the assailant, the aggressor, the humiliator, has to give to the humiliated Mosayim Zeus, 200 Zeus. If the assailant slapped him on his face, not with the palm, but with the other side of the hand, that, it's not about what feels more painful, it's about what feels more shameful. That somehow humiliates more, mamish double. You pay 400 zuz. It's expensive. So, number if the humiliator, if the assailant, if the aggressor pulled the victim's ear, or talash bisa'ara, he yanked his hair, or rakak, he spit at him, and and the spittle hit the victim, and as the Gemara is going to clarify, we'll get to that in the next year, it actually touched his body. Now we're not saying that if you spit in someone's direction, there's no humiliation, but that's not the case of the Mishnah. Not only did it not go towards him, not only did it hit his garments, it hit his person. Says the or hever talisa imimenu if you if the assailant took off the outer garment of the victim. Today we're living in a very here in LA, everyone is very casual. But imagine if people only walked outdoors with their outer garment, then when A rips off B's outer garment, there's also shame. Wow, he's walking without a jacket. Or, if the assailant uncovered a married woman's hair outside, in all of these cases, says the Mishnah, that the assailant has to give to the victim 400 zuz. Says the Mishnah, this is the rule. That everything depends on the dignity of the victim. In other words, the more honorable the victim, then the more shame they feel, then the more money has to be paid. The less honorable the victim, then the less money has to be paid. Now what's right away not clear in the Mishnah, does the Mishnah mean to use these words, by telling you that the numbers that the Mishnah gives is the minimum number? And if they are more honorable, you got to pay more? Or the opposite, the Mishnah is giving these numbers as the maximum number? And if they are of a lower social status, then you get to pay less. That's not clear. We'll leave that for the Gemara. Rashi points out right away. You got to know whether this is a kula or a chumra. Now, Omar Rabakiva, and Rabakiva is going to be the key to understanding the Tanakhama. Rabakiva says, and that's clear that he's being machmer, that afilu aniyim shebi Yisrael, that even a poor amongst the Jewish people. We don't say if they get humiliated, since the victim is poor, so we should give him some sort of leniency. Anyways, he doesn't feel that much shame. We never say that. That we look at all the poor, as if they are free men, meaning aristocrats, that lost their money. So yeah, they're not going to be evaluated as being currently wealthy people. But on the other hand, we're not going to view them as what appears to be the reality that they were born into poverty, 
that you know they're anyways to begin with already very humble. No, we look at them as aristocrats that lost their money. Perhaps you can say they're even more sensitive. You know, they were wealthy and now they're not. Why do we say that? Because we are descendants of the kings of Avram, Yitzchak, and Yaakov. So we are all viewed as the wealthiest people that temporarily lost our financial power. Again, Rabbi Kiva is being machmer, and the Gemara is going to extrapolate from Rabbi Kiva. We'll get to that when we get to the Gemara. What is the opinion of the Tanakam? Okay. Now, having said that, Umaisa, now we're going to learn a story with Rabbi Kiva. Again, these stories have to be a proof to the Shita Rabbi Kiva that we give to everyone a large amount of boishas. Even if you can argue right now they don't feel that, uh, that much shame. No. Halacha says they do feel that much shame. Umaisa be'echad, this is going to be a very important story. There was a story with a man, that he bared the head of a, of a woman in the market. In other words, he uncovered her hair. And now what did we learn in our Mishnah? 400 zuz. Certainly according to Rabbi Kiva, no matter who that woman is, even if she happens to be a woman that doesn't feel that much shame, 400 zuz. So they came in front of Rabbi Kiva, she came to Rabbi Kiva, and Rabbi Kiva obligated the assailant to give her the 400 zuz. Okay, Omar Loi, so the, the uh, assailant, the mazik, the choivel, tells Rabbi Kiva Rebbe, ten lizman, give me time to come up with the money. Now, by the way, we're going to learn this is an important sugya. Can one make such a claim? Now, it goes without saying, if someone taka doesn't have money, then what option do you have other than giving him time to come up with the money? But there are cases where people don't have cash, but they have, they have things, they have land. And the question is, does Bezden tell the, the guilty party, you have to uh, fire or sell it? Come up with the money now. Whenever you fire or sell something, you sell it for cheaper. Or can the person say, okay, I'm going to pay, but don't put pressure on me. Give me more time so I can sell it for a better price. However you'll understand it, in this case, Rabbi Kiva gave him more time. Again, more than that in the, in the Gemara and the Tzadik So he says, Rabbi, give me time to come up with the money. So the Nassim Lizman, Rabbi Kiva gave him time. So now he has time. What do you think he did with his time? He wasn't using this time to sell his real estate, to pay this woman. He was spending this time to prove to Rabbi Kiva that she doesn't care that much whether her hair is covered or not. And he succeeded. What happened? Shemara, the perpetrator, was standing in wait. He waited until she walked out of her house on her courtyard. And he found an opportunity where Veshibet es hakoid bifanel. She had a jug of oil, whether it was hers or whether it was his. I think it was her jug of oil. He broke the jug of oil. Now the oil, the, that jug had in it oil. There was the worth, Rashi says, of one iser of oil. Very small amount of money. But she didn't want to lose that iser worth of oil. Now she lost the jug. We learned this in Shabbos. And we learned this also a lot in Moed. It was, it was, so to say, relatively normal for people to transport oil in their hair. In other words, you have no other option. Oil is going to leak out, it's going to get lost. If you get that oil in your hair, then it stays there, and then you'll squeeze it out. Oh, so what did she do? Gil says Reisha, she herself uncovered her hair. Now mind you, this didn't happen in her home. This happened in front of her home. This happened in the courtyard. And and she was moistening her hand in the oil, 
And Umanachas Yod, Aureshim, she was putting it in her hair. So what did he prove from this story? He was now going to owe her for sure, for the drug. He was proving that for her to save one Isser, she didn't mind the shame of uncovering her hair. And when he had that scenario fold out, he had witnesses that saw that this happened. And he went back to Rabbi Kiva. And Omar Lein, he tells Rabbi Kiva, the Bach adds the words that Rebbe, this is the woman to whom I have to pay 400 Zuz? What? Yeah, she felt busha. For one Easter, she uncovered her hair herself. Rabbi Kiva did not accept it. Rabbi Kiva tells this person, what you're saying is gurnish, is nothing. And Rabbi Kiva explained why. This is a Gavaldike Mishnah. If a person injures themselves, even though they're not allowed to do so, and by the way, we'll get to that again in next year, Rashi says, we have to, where, do, where do we know that? But we, uh, one cannot injure themselves. What happens if one injures themselves? Pater. Even though they're not allowed to do it, they don't have to pay any money. Because you can't. But I'm going to pay from one pocket to the other pocket. But if I injure myself, you don't have the right to say that since I injure myself, that means I don't care. You have the right to injure me? Rabbi Kiva says, we don't say that. Nevertheless, if others injure that person, they'll have to pay. Rabbi Kiva gives another example. If a person cuts down their young saplings. Now this we know is a Pasuk in Parsha Shoiftim, right, when we are waging war against an enemy. So the Torah says that don't cut down you know, the trees. They're not fighting against you. But that Loisashchis, we call that Baltashchis, we're not allowed to cut down, destroy a tree. So if a person owns trees, even though he's not allowed to cut it down, nevertheless, Potter, if he is the owner, again, you're not going to obligate him to give money. But if I cut down your young sapling, I'm chayiv. Rashi brings down that we learned before in Hakainas, I got to pay you two silver kesev. Well, the point is, is that even though the woman did not, so to say, stand up for her own humiliation, and that goes back to, to, to what Rabbi Kiva said, like currently, spiritually, she's, she's a poor person. She doesn't understand that, it, that there's, there's humiliation in uncovering your hair. But nevertheless, we view her as an aristocrat, that lost right now that spiritual sensitivity. But if another person damages her, you got to pay her as you pay an aristocrat. And Abakiva kept his psagdin that he owes this woman the full, the full 400 zoos. A lot more of this when we get to the Gemara and Daftar Kalf. Okay, we can, we can take that. Just okay. Okay. There's also another part involved is that and the part, the humiliator, if I'm ashamed myself, then there's no shame in that. But as far as the humiliated is concerned, no, it's the shame of having here uncovered, Rabbi Kiva stood his ground, which is that she might not feel it. She might not care for it, but we view her as someone that deep down does care for that. Okay, says the Gemara. So firstly, as we pointed out, that what we have in our Mishnah, a very unusual argument, Tanoim, as to how do you monetize Boishas. So the first case of the Mishnah, according to the first interpretation of Rashi, is when one hit physically, Hatoikeya here means hitting someone in the ear. 
So the Tanakama said a sela, which is like a four zoos, and Rabbi Yehuda, in the name of Rabbi Yisiaglili, said a hundred mana. Now one second, when it comes to a mana, this is a question that we have continuously in Shahs. Iboyaluhu they asked. Mana that we are speaking about over here, is it Tsuritran? Right, the coinage that were that was made in Sur was made out of pure silver. And it had eight times the value of the same name of the currency that was made in everywhere else. Manatsuri, Manamedini. Where did we have this? We have this in Daflamadvav in Bavakama, but we have this many times and we'll have this many times. So the question is when the when the when the second opinion, the mana, is it a Tsuri mana? Or is it Mana Medini? Mana Medini is the eighth of it. So Tashima, so right away the Gemara answered that Tahu Gavra, there was a story that there was a man that that he hit someone else in the ear. And also the Kami did Rabbi Yehuda Nisiyah. They came in front of Rabbi Yehuda Nisiyah. And Amar Lei, Rabbi Yehuda Nisiyah told the assailant, Ho Ano, here am I. We'll see soon what that means. That will be key to the next conversation. Ho, and here is the opinion of Rabbi Yisiyah Glili. That says in the Mishnah that if you are Tekeh al you got to pay one mana. So he tells him, Havle mana tsuri. Clear. He told him mana tsuri. So Shmamina mana tsuri tran. Now, by the way, we learned in the Flamid Mavamid days that whenever the Mishnah says the word Sela, it means Sela Medini, not tsuri. So when we spoke out on the Mishnah that one says, you know, one Sela, and one says Amana, so we said that Amana is 25 Sela, it's not 25 times more. It's 25 times 8. So the Machlekes is 200 times more, which is very unusual. But the Tanakhama says, Asela Medini. Rabbi Yehuda, Nebuchadnezzar, says, Amanatsuri. That is the difference between the shame felt by getting hit in the ear. Very interesting. Shmamino. Okay, now that we quoted the story, so one person was Tekeh and Rabbi Yehuda, Nebuchadnezzar, says, Oh, here am I. And here is Rabbi Yisiaglili. My ho'ano, ho'rabi Yisiaglili. Ilema, if you'll understand the story of Rabbi Yehuda Nesiyah saying, ha'chi ka'amalei, ho'ano dechazisach. Here am I meaning, I am the one that saw you hitting your fellow. And being that I saw it, I don't need to have witnesses. Because I myself saw it. Now, now that I know that it happened, then how much money do you have to pay? So now he quoted Vahadab Yaisi Haglili that said in our Mishnah that for Tekeh Lachaveda you have to give a mana and a chatsuri. And therefore he tells him, Havle Manatsuri. If that is the meaning of those words, so now we're going to go into a very important sugya called Eid Nasadayan. Can a witness himself become a judge? Now, a couple of uh, words of introduction. Firstly, even though the Gemara over here, is going to be quoting the source of this argument by a capital case. And we're trying to apply it here by a, by a financial case, by a monetary case. Just to know that in halacha there is a difference between the rules of life and death, capital cases, versus monetary cases. There we are more lenient regarding how much can the judge himself be a witness. And certainly, for example, we're going way back now, when the, when the judges are the ones that saw the new moon, Everyone holds that the judges, when they see the new moon, can right then declare, make the proclamation that, you know, Mekudish, that it's Rosh Chodesh. They're for sure eight Nasadayin. Just be aware of that. In our sugya, we're going to be mixing up capital cases and the case over here of financial. Now, before we go on, another word of introduction. When we speak about whether a witness can become a judge, there are two types of witnesses becoming a judge. And the words that we will use is, there is eight Haroya, 
There was someone who saw something, and then there's eight hamayid, then there's a witness that is actually testifying. So like this, when someone sees something, but they are not being the witness here, but they saw it themselves, other witnesses are there. That's less problematic. Else do we say that the judges are disqualified because they already saw themselves? There are, we're going to see that Traptarifin is going to be more lenient by saying that as long as he is not the one actually giving testimony, even though he potentially could be a witness, because he saw, but he's acting as a judge, you're good. We're going to learn a Rabbi Kiva that says that not only can you not have a witness who's testifying for him himself to be the judge, even if he's not testifying, even if he's not an aid Hamayid, he's only an aid Horoya. He only saw the fact that he saw something disqualifies him from being a judge in that case. So now all this will be leading up to the question that if Rabbi Yehuda Nesiyah, who says, here am I, meant oh, well, I saw you hitting him, here it's worse because here, if that means that you don't even need witnesses, how can you not need witnesses? No, it's no one holds, not even Aptarfan holds, that the witness himself can be the witness and the judge. And here, seemingly, there was no witnesses. That's the problem. Let's read it inside. Rabbi Huda Nesiyah is telling that guy, I saw you doing it. I know it happened. How do you know? You're, you're the witness and you're the judge. We learned in Abraisa that Sanhedrin Again, the Abraisa is speaking about capital case. If there was a Sanhedrin that saw Reuven killing Shimon. Now, you don't need to have all of the Sanhedrin sitting as judges. Interesting here, Rashi says that three judges are enough, but we're going to see in Sanhedrin that it's not so simple. For capital cases, you have to have at least 23 judges. Many people explain that Rashi here is saying that you only need to have three judges to accept the testimony. For that, three is enough. But to actually sentence someone based on the testimony, you need to have 23 judges. But whatever that is, you, you don't need all of the witnesses to be judges. So says the first opinion, says Rabbi Tarfin, Miktsosen Nasu Edom. Some of them, you know, you need to have testimony. Some of them become the witnesses. And the others become the judges. In other words, the judges won't act as the witnesses themselves. Raptarfan does not accept the aid Hamayid to become a judge. But Raptarfan says that if he only saw, if he's only an aid Haraya, in other words, it's only a potential, he's only eligible to be a witness. As long as he's not the actual witness, he can act as judge. These are, these are the words of Rabbi Tarfan. Rabbi Tarfan has that logic based on the concept that loish tehei shemiyah, that listening should not be better than seeing. No, it's Rabbi Tarfan holds that if a judge has the right to judge a case because he heard from witnesses what happened, seeing is even better. So if he saw it, even the better. It's not a downer, but on the other hand, he cannot act as the witness and the judge. Rabbi Kiva says no. Not only can he not be the eight hameid, can't even be an eight haroya. Rabbi Kiva says, Klum Adam Haim, if they all happen to see the murder, so they are all at least eligible to be witnesses. They all saw. And there's a rule that if you saw the ain't eight Nasadayan, you are disqualified from being a judge. End of Braisa. So says the Gemara at Khan even Abtarfan is more lenient uh, that holds that some of them can be witnesses and the other ones can be judges. Because even Abtarfan holds that an aid whose ma'id cannot be a dayan. An aid haraya could be a dayan. An eligible aid can be a dayan. 
based on his own testimony, even Abtarfan says no, like Ahmad. So how can a Yehud and say, I saw you hitting, and therefore I'm the judge. By the way, even by monetary cases, ideally you have to have three judges, but you can say that Rabbi Yehud was what we call a Yachid Mumcha. He was an expert. And an expert can sit in judgment by himself, even though it's not ideal. Okay, so you have a judge. But if he saw, he cannot be the witnesses and the judge. Answers the Gemara, a few answers. First of all, one answer will be that where did we learn in the Braisa that Raptarfan says that the witnesses cannot be made and be the judges. That's only Sharoh Balayla, only if they saw the murder happening at night. Being that the being that we're not allowed to make a dintreda at night, and therefore they are not adjudicating at that instant. That's where the aid, Hamayid, cannot be a judge. But Raptarfan will hold that if the witnesses, who are judges, saw an event and they are able to hold a session right then, then even those witnesses who, so to say, testify, they could be the judges. Because they're right away giving a ruling. So three people saw something happening, they right away can pass, well, this will be the halacha now. When does Rabtarfan say that the witnesses cannot be both witness and judge? That's if you have to have a hearing not during the event, later. And coming back in our case, so if that's the case, in our case, when Rabbi Yehuda Nisiyah witnessed one hitting the air of another, he was ruling right then and there. He says, ah, I saw you. And Rabbi Yehuda says, Amana, give him Amana Tzuri. That's one answer. Vibai say another answer, no, that Rabtarfan will never hold that witnesses in, in capital cases, Maybe not in financial cases. By Kiddush HaChodesh, yeah, that's for sure. If they see the new moon, they can right away declare it Rosh We're more lenient. But in our cases, Rabtarfan holds that they can never testify and be the judge. But the case of the Braisa is not that there were no witnesses. Like this is what Rabbi Yehud tells the assailant. Here am I, meaning that here am I, that I paskin like Rabbi Yehud Like we mentioned, the Machlekes Tanoim is huge. Whether it's a Sela Medini or a Manatsuri. So firstly, Rabbi Yudin says, one second. Here am I, and I know that the halach is not lenient. You pay four Suloi uh, and Medinim. You got to pay a hundred Zuz. You got to pay one Manatsuri. Like I said, 200 times more. Double Manatsuri. And there happen to be witnesses. That's a given. Rabbi Yudin was not acting as the witness and judge. And Baha Sadi, and here are witnesses. The Misadi Bach that are testifying. No, good. So now we explained the Braith. So now we clarified it's, it's Mana Tsuri. But now that we brought up the Sugya of Aid Nasadayan or not, now let's continue with that. So, because they don't have to listen to witnesses. No, it's, what's the formality of a Dintaira? People come and testify. You have to testify during the judgment. You can't just come with prior knowledge. So if they are actually, in front of whom are they testifying? So they're going to this side of the bench, they're sitting, they're, test they're going on that side, they're talking to the chair. Doesn't work, you have to testify in front of someone. It can't be the eight hamayid and be the judge that's listening. Obviously. It makes sense and they're so biased. We, don't, we want them to be impartial. How can they be impartial? Which is why Dabakiva holds that even if they are eligible to be witnesses, they can't be judges. We would rather the judges come with no knowledge and they pick up the knowledge based on what's accepted halachic evidence. 
A lot more of that when we'll get to the sugya. So now, the Sovet, Abakiva, the Eid, Eid Nasadayin, hold on, does Abakiva hold that an Eid Haroya cannot be a witness? Vehatanya, we learned in Abraisom. And this is based on a Pasuk and Pashas Mishpatim. There the Pasuk says that Kiyirivun Anoshim, if two men are fighting, Vihika Ish Esri Eub and one man hits the other with a stone or with his fist. And that's the Pasuk that says that if the victim doesn't die, if he gets up, that's the source that's right before shading in Mishpatim, that the assailant has to pay for his medical bills. So one second. So it says, The example that the trader gives is when an assailant hit a victim with a stone or with a fist. So remember this. Shimon Hatimni says that these two examples are given to teach you the following rule. Ma Egrev, just like a fist. In Meyuchar, it's distinctive, it's unique, which is, It's available for inspection, both by the court, by the Eidah, as it is to the witnesses. People come to court with their hands. So, as we'll see in a moment, when one person injures the other, we'll get to that more again in the next year, when one person, God forbid, murders the other, if the instrument that they used to damage or to kill, normally would be unable to do so. Even if the victim got injured, sometimes we will say that the victim got injured because the victim was very weak. In other words, yeah, we, we don't blame the victim, but we, take, we have to take the circumstances of the victim into account. So the tool has to be assessed that it's a tool that Taka could have created the injury that it created. Now the question is, who makes that assessment? Shimon Atimni holds that the witnesses cannot make that assessment on their own. Bayesden has to see the instrument that was used for damaging. For them to be able to assess whether it could have done the damage or not. So, and just, so the Torah speaks about a fist and a stone. Just like the fist is always available to the Ada as to the Adem, Af Koil, any other instrument that was used to damage. It has to be available in the Bayesden. The Bayesden has to see it and they have to make the assessment. You know, let's read Rashi inside. Now, what happens if they assess that that fist was, was a shvacha person? His fist was made a little fist. And the, and the victim was a big, strong guy. So the din is, look at Rashi. He won't be obligated to pay. Because Bezdin will say, It's because of the weakness of the victim. And the delicacy of the victim, that's why he got damaged. Again, but who makes that assessment? According to Shemana Timni, Bezdin has to make the assessment. Back in the Gemara. Pra, that comes to exclude that, that if the assault weapon was lost from the witnesses, they lost it. Even though the witnesses are telling the basin, no, we saw that stone that injured was a stone that is able to injure. Basin cannot give up Sagdin. That is Shemeratimni. So Omar Loi Rabakiva says Rabakiva Bezdin he Does the assailant have to injure the victim in front of Bezdin? Did it happen that way? For Bezdin to see how many times was he hit? which is also part of the assessment. How many times did he hit him? Maybe a little uh, stone cannot injure him once. No, it's, the point he's going to make is, is that Bezin relies on the Adem. 
So just like they rely on the Adam for how many times was he struck? Where was he struck? That's also important. Meaning, was he struck on his shoik? Was he struck on his, uh, on his leg? Being hit on the leg and, and getting injured heavily is more unusual. Or maybe al tzipar nafshay. There's a machlaik. Either tzipar nafshay means on the cartilage of his heart. Tzipar nafshay might mean on his throat. That also has to be taken into account. Because the throat is very delicate. If you get a very little wound on the throat, that's a, that's a wound, that's an assault weapon that can cause injury or even death. And furthermore, if one person, God forbid, push someone else off the, a roof, or from a, the head of a, uh, of a tower, and they died, does Beisden have to go to the tower to see if the height of the tower was enough for a person to die? Or is it enough for the tower to go to Beisden? How does the tower go to Beisden? Through the witnesses. In other words, Rabbi Kiva is saying that Beisden relies on the witnesses. And furthermore, what happens? You're going to tell me, no, that Beisden has to see the tower. Yeah? If Reuven pushed Shimon off the roof, and Basin has to go to that roof. And before Basin gets there, the roof, the whole house fell in. What, you can't make a judgment anymore because Basin didn't see themselves? What, you have to build it back up? Ella, Rabbi Kiva says, without that, Basin has to accept the testimony from the witnesses. As long as the witnesses can tell Basin that this was a weapon that could have caused that injury, that it's normative to cause that injury, that's enough. We rely on the assessment of the Adam. So why does the trader give an example? The Adam have to see the assault weapon. So just like the fist, you don't lose your fist, is something that the Adam can look at. So Avkoil says Rabbi Kiva, any assault weapon has to be has to be an assault weapon that the witnesses see. Like we spoke on Anashi. Because if an assault weapon is very little, and what happened was something very unusual, that the victim was hurt even by that little assault uh, weapon, then there are times that we will say that it's not because of the assailant that the victim got injured, it's because of the weakness of the victim that the victim got injured. And therefore the, the punishment won't be the same. And for that you have to make an assessment, but Aiden can make the assessment. That if A hit B, and before the Aiden saw the assault weapon, A lost the weapon. Then Potter, okay, that's the end of this machlekes. We'll get back to that. Shemana Timni, Rabbi Kiva, who has to assess the weapon? Now says the Gemara proof. Ktonemias. In any event, what does it say? Amalei Rabbi Kiva, v'chim v'fnei Beisdin hiko. Does every assault have to happen in front of Beisdin? Sheyoidim b'me kama hiko for the Beisdin to know how many times did he hit him, etc. Why does that imply that if indeed one person assaulted the other in front of Beisdin, then Beisdin will know? But hold on, what did we just say? That what does Rabbi Kiva hold? That witnesses cannot be dayonim. Then eid nasadayim, even if they're not the eid hameid, but eid haroya is not a disqualification. That's a kash on Rabbi Kiva. He's using an example according to Rabbi Kiva that is never going to be correct. If the judges saw the, the, the assault, then they can never be sitting in judgment. Says the Gemara, you're right. However, Rabbi Kiva himself is of the opinion that an aide who is eligible to be a witness, an aide haraya, cannot be a judge. He's just refuting Rabbi Shimon because Rabbi Kiva knew that he's unique in that. That Rabbi Tarfin and the other Tanoim held that an aide haraya could be a judge. 
his point to Rabbi Shimon Atimni is, what are you telling me, that Bezin has to see everything? According to Shimon Atimni, that's okay. We don't say that. And therefore, again, Rabbi Kiva disagrees and he holds that Bezin doesn't need to make the assessment. Bezin, like in everything else, relies on the witnesses. We'll stop over here and a lot more of this in Mirza Hashem to be continued.